0: Chapter Seventeen of The Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen He Has Slain the Sacred Son of Set. The harbor of Kahemi lay between two great jutting points of land that ran into the ocean. He rounded the southern point, where the great black castles rose like a man made hill and entered the harbor just at dusk, when there was still enough light for the watchers to recognize the fisherman's boat and mantle, but not enough to permit recognition of betraying details. Unchallenged, he threaded his way among the great black war-galleys lying silent and unlighted at anchor, and drew up to a flight of wide stone steps which mounted up from the water's edge. There he made his boat fast to an iron ring set in the stone, as numerous similar craft were tied. There was nothing strange in a fisherman leaving his boat there. None but a fisherman could find a use for such a craft, and they did not steal from one another. No one cast him more than a casual glance as he mounted the long steps, unobtrusively avoiding the torches that flared at intervals above the lapping black water. He seemed but an ordinary, empty-handed fisherman, returning after a fruitless day along the coast. If one had observed him closely, it might have seemed that his step was somewhat too springy and sure, his carriage somewhat too erect and confident for a lowly fisherman, but he passed quickly, keeping in the shadows, and the commoners of Stygia were no more given to analysis than were the commoners of the less exotic races. In build, he was not unlike the warrior castes of the Stygians, who were a tall, muscular race. Bronzed by the sun, he was nearly as dark as many of them. His black hair, square-cut and confined by a copper band, increased the resemblance. The characteristics which set him apart from them were the subtle difference in his walk and his alien features and blue eyes. But the mantle was a good disguise, and he kept as much in the shadows as possible, turning away his head when a native passed him too closely. But it was a desperate game, and he knew he could not long keep up the deception. Kahemi was not like the seaports of the Hyborians, where types of every race swarmed. The only aliens here were Negro and Shemite slaves, and he resembled neither even as much as he resembled the Stygians themselves. Strangers were not welcome in the cities of Stygia, tolerated only when they came as ambassadors or licensed traders, but even then the latter were not allowed ashore after dark, and now there were no Hyborian ships in the harbor at all. A strange restlessness ran through the city, a stirring of ancient ambitions, a whispering none could define except those who whispered. This Conan felt rather than knew, his whetted primitive instincts sensing unrest about him. If he were discovered, his fate would be ghastly. They would slay him merely for being a stranger. If he were recognized as Amra, the corsair chief who had swept their coasts with steel and flame, an involuntary shudder twitched Conan's broad shoulders. Human foes he did not fear, nor any death by steel or fire. But this was a black land of sorcery and nameless horror. Set the old serpent, men said, banished long ago from the Hyborian races, yet lurked in the shadows of the cryptic temples, and awful and mysterious were their deeds done in the knighted shrines. He had drawn away from the waterfront streets with their broad steps leading down to the water, and was entering the long shadowy streets of the main part of the city. There was no such scene as was offered by any Hyborian city. No blaze of lamps and cressets with gay-clad people laughing and strolling along the pavements and shops and stalls wide open and displaying their wares. Here the stalls were closed at dusk. The only lights along the streets were torches, flaring smokily at wide intervals. People walking the streets were comparatively few. They went hurriedly and unspeaking, and their numbers decreased with the lateness of the hour. Conan found the scene gloomy and unreal. The silence of the people, their furtive haste, the great black stone walls that rose on each side of the streets. There was a grim massiveness about Stygian architecture that was overpowering and oppressive. Few lights showed anywhere except in the upper parts of the buildings. Conan knew that most of the people lay on the flat roofs among the palms of artificial gardens under the stars. There was a murmur of weird music from somewhere. Occasionally a bronze chariot rumbled along the flags, And there was a brief glimpse of a tall, hawk-faced noble, with a silk cloak wrapped about him, and a gold band, with a rearing serpent-head emblem confining his black mane, of the ebon, naked charioteer bracing his knotty legs against the straining of the fierce Stygian horses. But the people who yet traversed the streets on foot were commoners, slaves, tradesmen, harlots, toilers, and they became fewer as he progressed. He was making toward the temple of Set, where he knew he would be likely to find the priest he sought. He believed he would know Theutethimes if he saw him, though his one glance had been in the semi darkness of the Mesantian Alley. That the man he had seen there had been the priest, he was certain. Only occultists high in the mazes of the hideous black ring possessed the power of the black hand that dealt death by its touch, and only such a man would dare defy Thoth-Amon, whom the western world knew only as a figure of terror and myth. The street broadened, and Conan was aware that he was getting into the part of the city dedicated to the temples. The great structures reared their black bulks against the dim stars, grim, indescribably menacing in the flare of the few torches. And suddenly he heard a low scream from a woman on the other side of the street and somewhat ahead of him, a naked courtesan wearing the tall-plumed headdress of her class. She was shrinking back against the wall, staring across at something he could not yet see, At her cry, the few people on the street halted suddenly, as if frozen. At the same instant Conan was aware of a sinister slithering ahead of him. Then, about the dark corner of the building he was approaching, poked a hideous, wedge-shaped head, and after it flowed coil after coil of rippling, darkly glistening trunk. The Cimmerian recoiled, remembering tales he had heard— Serpents were sacred to Set, god of Stygia, who men said was himself a serpent. Monsters such as this were kept in the temples of Set, and when they hungered were allowed to crawl forth into the streets to take what prey they wished. Their ghastly feasts were considered a sacrifice to the scaly god. The Stygians, within Conan's sight, fell to their knees, men and women, and passively awaited their fate. One the great serpent would select, would lap in scaly coils, crush to a red pulp, and swallow as a rat-snake swallows a mouse. The others would live. That was the will of the gods. But it was not Conan's will. The python glided toward him, its attention probably attracted by the fact that he was the only human in sight still standing erect. Gripping his great knife under his mantle, Conan hoped the slimy brute would pass him by. But it halted before him and reared up horrifically in the flickering torchlight, its forked tongue flickering in and out, its cold eyes glittering with the ancient cruelty of the serpent folk. Its neck arched, but before it could dart, Conan whipped his knife from under his mantle and struck like a flicker of lightning. The broad blade split that wedge-shaped head and sheared deep into the thick neck. Conan wrenched his knife free and sprang clear as the great body knotted and looped and whipped terrifically in its death throes. In the moment that he stood staring in morbid fascination... The only sound was the thud and swish of the snake's tail against the stones. Then from the shocked votaries burst a terrible cry. Blasphemer! He has slain the sacred son of Set! Slay him! Slay! Slay! Stones whizzed about him, and the crazed Stygians rushed at him, shrieking hysterically, while from all sides others emerged from their houses and took up the cry. With a curse, Conan wheeled and darted into the black mouth of an alley. He heard the patter of the bare feet on the flags behind him, as he ran more by feel than by sight, and the walls resounded to the vengeful yells of the pursuers. Then his left hand found a break in the wall, and he turned sharply into another, narrower alley. On both sides rose sheer black stone walls. High above him he could see a thin line of stars. These giant walls he knew were the walls of temples. He heard behind him the pack sweep past the dark mouth in full cry. Their shouts grew distant, faded away. They had missed the smaller alley and run straight on in the blackness. He, too, kept straight ahead, though the thought of encountering another of Set's sons in the darkness brought a shudder from him. Then, somewhere ahead of him, he caught a moving glow, like that of a crawling glow-worm. He halted, flattened himself against the wall, and gripped his knife. He knew what it was—a man approaching with a torch— NOW IT WAS SO CLOSE HE COULD MAKE OUT THE DARK HAND THAT GRIPPED IT AND THE DIM OVAL OF A DARK FACE. A FEW MORE STEPS AND THE MAN WOULD CERTAINLY SEE HIM. HE SANK INTO A TIGERISH CROUCH. THE TORCH HALTED. A DOOR WAS BRIEFLY ETCHED IN THE GLOW WHILE THE torchbearer FUMBLED WITH IT. THEN IT OPENED. THE TALL FIGURE VANISHED THROUGH IT, AND DARKNESS CLOSED AGAIN ON THE ALLEY. There was a sinister suggestion of furtiveness about that slinking figure entering the alley-door in darkness, a priest perhaps returning from some dark errand. But Conan groped toward the door. If one man came up that alley with a torch, others might come at any time. To retreat the way he had come might mean to run full into the mob from which he was fleeing." At any moment they might return, find the narrower alley, and come howling down it. He felt hemmed in by those sheer, unscalable walls, desirous of escape, even if escape meant invading some unknown building. The heavy bronze door was not locked. It opened under his fingers, and he peered through the crack. He was looking into a great square chamber of massive black stone, A torch smoldered in a niche in the wall. The chamber was empty. He glided through the lacquered door and closed it behind him. His sandaled feet made no sound as he crossed the black marble floor. A teak door stood partly open, and gliding through this, knife in hand, he came out into a great, dim, shadowy place, whose lofty ceiling was only a hint of darkness high above him, toward which the black walls swept upward. On all sides black arched doorways opened into the great still hall. It was lit by curious bronze lamps that gave a dim, weird light. On the other side of the great hall, a broad black marble stairway, without a railing, marched upward to lose itself in gloom. And above him, on all sides... Dim galleries hung like black stone ledges. Conan shivered. He was in a temple of some Stygian god, if not set himself, then someone barely less grim. And the shrine did not lack an occupant. In the midst of the great hall stood a black stone altar, massive, somber, without carvings or ornament, and upon it coiled one of the great sacred serpents, its iridescent scales shimmering in the lamplight. It did not move, and Conan remembered stories that the priests kept these creatures drugged part of the time. The Cimmerian took an uncertain step out from the door, then shrank back suddenly, not into the room he had just quitted, but into a velvet-curtained recess, he had heard a soft step somewhere nearby. From one of the black arches emerged a tall, powerful figure in sandals and silken loincloth, with a wide mantle trailing from his shoulders. But face and head were hidden by a monstrous mask, a half-bestial, half-human countenance, from the crest of which floated a mass of ostrich plumes. In certain ceremonies the Stygian priests went massed. Conan hoped the man would not discover him, but some instinct warned the Stygian. He turned abruptly from his destination, which apparently was the altar, and stepped straight to the recess. As he jerked aside the velvet hanging, a hand darted from the shadows, crushed the cry in his throat, and jerked him headlong into the alcove, and the knife impaled him. Conan's next move was the obvious one suggested by logic. He lifted off the grinning mask and drew it over his own head. The fisherman's mantle he flung over the body of the priest, which he concealed behind the hangings, and drew the priestly mantle about his own brawny shoulders. Fate had given him a disguise. "'Alkehemi might well be searching now for the blasphemer "'who dared defend himself against a sacred snake, "'but who would dream of looking for him under the mask of a priest? "'He strode boldly from the alcove "'and headed for one of the arched doorways at random, "'but he had not taken a dozen strides, "'when he wheeled again, all his senses edged for peril. "'A band of masked figures filed down the stair.' appareled exactly as he was. He hesitated, caught in the open, and stood still, trusting to his disguise, though cold sweat gathered on his forehead and the backs of his hands. No word was spoken. Like phantoms they descended into the great hall and moved past him toward a black arch. The leader carried an ebon staff, which supported a grinning white skull, and Conan knew it was one of the ritualistic processions so inexplicable to a foreigner, but which played a strong, and often sinister, part in the Stygian religion. The last figure turned his head slightly toward the motionless Cimmerian, as if expecting him to follow. Not to do what was obviously expected of him would rouse instant suspicion. Conan fell in behind the last man, and suited his gait to their measured pace. They traversed a long, dark, vaulted corridor in which, Conan noticed uneasily, the skull of the staff glowed phosphorescently. He felt a surge of unreasoning wild animal panic that urged him to rip out his knife and slash right and left at these uncanny figures to flee madly from the grim, dark temple but he held himself in check, fighting down the dim, monstrous intuitions that rose in the back of his mind and peopled the gloom with shadowy shapes of horror, and presently he barely stifled a sigh of relief as they filed through a great double-valved door which was three times higher than a man and emerged into the starlight. Conan wondered if he dared fade into some dark alley, but hesitated uncertain, and down the long, dark street they padded silently while such folks as they met turned their heads away and fled from them. The procession kept far out from the walls. To turn and bolt into any of the alleys they passed would be too conspicuous. While he mentally fumed and cursed, they came to a low-arched gateway in the southern wall, and through this they filed." Ahead of them and about them lay clusters of low, flat-topped mud-houses and palm-groves shadowy in the starlight. Now, if ever, thought Conan, was the time to escape his silent companions. But the moment the gate was left behind them, those companions were no longer silent. They began to mutter excitedly among themselves. The measured, ritualistic gait was abandoned, the staff with his skull was tucked unceremoniously under the leader's arm, and the whole group broke ranks and hurried onward. And Conan hurried with him, for in the low murmur of speech he had caught a word that galvanized him. The word was Thu-Utathemes. End of chapter 17